Welcome to the Murder Book, a true crime podcast, where each week we will present notorious crimes, controversial cases, unsolved cases, missing persons, and serial killers, details of the crime scenes, childhood of the murderer, and the life of the victims will be explored. Each episode is translated into Spanish. We have a new episode every Monday, and you can listen to it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and other platforms you use to listen to your podcasts. Let's begin. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution for children under 13. In part four of the Jovan Bundesrug case, we will focus on the rest of the story related to the murder of Stephanie Flores in 2010 in Lima, Peru. And how is that Jovan is trying to get away with murder by escaping to Chile? Let's begin. May 30th, 2010, Ica, Peru. When the video camera in Lima's hotel tag captured Jovan van der Sloot exiting the hotel for the final time on the morning of May 30th, he was wearing jeans and a short-sleeved red and white striped polo shirt. His dark brown hair was military-style short. Twelve hours later, a cosmetically altered van der Sloot turned up more than 150 miles south of Lima in Ica, Peru, a bleak and downtrodden city of about 200,000 people. Although no arrest warrant had yet been issued, Duran was a fugitive, trying to get out of Peru as quickly as possible. After abandoning Stephanie Flores's black jeep on a side street near the uh, Las Palmas Air Force Base, he had fled the area on foot. How he made the 150-mile journey south to Ica was unclear. Somewhere along the route, he had stopped long enough to shave his head and dye his remaining stubble on an orange blonde. He also changed his clothing and was now sporting electric blue Bermuda shorts, white sneakers, and a dark-colored t-shirt. With a backpack slung over his shoulders and a beige duffel bag in one hand, he was perfectly disguised as a typical gringo on vacation, and now his ruddy complexion and towering frame made it impossible for him to avoid attention, so he opted for the tourist character, a role he had perfected as a teenager in Aruba. John Williams Bisconte, a taxi driver, was standing in front of his white minivan waiting for a paying stranger to come along. He was sipping coffee and talking with his twin brother, John Osvaldo, when a rangy uh, foreigner with a shaved head and bright blue shorts falling below his knees approached. Although Jovan spoke only broken Spanish, he had no trouble communicating. He wanted to go to the Peruvian town of Nazca. In Peru, Nazca was a hugely, uh, hugely popular tourist destination. Think of the the famous uh, Nazca lines, right? The, the drawings intricately etched in the desert. Jovan van der Sloot appeared to be the first of another load of tourists as he got into the van. Uh, 
But after only a few minutes, he grew impatient. He didn't want to wait for the minivan to fill out with additional passengers. Irritated and anxious, he asked about the express service, saying he would pay a negotiated fare and half the van for himself. After a short negotiation, the two settled on a a one-way price of $30, which is the equivalent of six passengers. His passenger uh, was a chain smoker, as it was observed by Visconti. He seemed to prefer silence to making conversation. At first, he didn't answer simple questions like what he did for a living. Eventually, he became more talkative, telling the cab driver that he was from Holland and had come to see the country. Visconti asked him where was he heading now, and Jovan replied, Arica referring to a small Chilean town about 400 miles south, just on the other side of the Peruvian border. He explained that he was planning to tour the southern half of South America. Around 11.40 p.m. that Sunday night, Bisconte drops his passenger at the, the town's main roundabout near the gas station. Nazca was a dangerous place, especially at night. Here at midnight, Joran found himself at the bus station alone, a foreigner with a roll of money in his front pocket, a six-foot-four-inch tall target. Less than 20 minutes later, Duran was desperately seeking his cabbie, and he found John Williams Bisconte at the roundabout chatting with a group of other uh, van drivers. And he told him, I want you to take me to Tacna. And... Pisconte was familiar with Tacna. The Peruvian border town was 400 miles south on the Pan-American Highway. He also knew this well-paying customer was making his way to Chile. However, the midnight hour and the distance make the trip close to impossible. So he pointed to the uh, towards the terminal, the bus terminal, and he said, there are buses over there. Besides, I don't know the roads down there very well. The ride from Nazca to Tacna along the Pan-American Highway was one lane in each direction with the Pacific Ocean on the right, the Andes on the left. During the day, the drive was breathtaking. But John Williams was exhausted, having spent the day driving back and forth on his usual route. Joran was insistent and pleaded with the cab driver to reconsider. After a few minutes, Piscante stabbed his fingers at Van der Sloot and said, okay, we'll do it for 1,500 nuevos soles. $500 was more than either uh, uh, the driver uh, earning a month. And he called his um, brother, John Osvaldo, who was also in the roundabout. And that was $500 more than what they usually make. So he talked to his brother and Joran agreed to the price, even though he knew he didn't have the money to pay the fare. Because of the length of the trip, the brothers hired a third cab driver to help with the driving for $7, Carlos Uribe Petril, and he joined the journey. So now they have been driving south on the Pan-American Highway for several hours when John Osvaldo, the, the twin, turn around to talk to their passenger who had just awoken from a nap and asked him, so what's your name? And he said, Van der Sloot. 
Joran told the man he had had problems in Lima but didn't elaborate. Instead, he reclined in his seat and he uh, closed his eyes again. All three cabbies were startled at how their fare reacted as they slow at the first highway police checkpoint. The checkpoints were scattered along the length of the route to curb contraband, usually drugs. They were manned by heavily armed uniformed police and bulletproof uh, vests carrying automatic weapons. Joran had no idea if the police were looking for him or if Stephanie's body had even been discovered. He assumed that her body had been found and that law enforcement had issued an Interpol alert. Sitting erect in the back of the van, Joran lit a cigarette and watched nervously out the window of the minivan as they were slowed, then waved through a procedure, uh, which is a procedure that it repeats itself at least a half dozen times along the highway. When he was awake, Joran was more talkative than he had been from Ica to Nazca. He told the trio he was from Aruba. Much had happened to him since he had first left the island five years earlier, including a residency in Thailand and the death of his father. In response to questions about his employment, the pathological liar told the cab drivers that he worked for his father at a civil engineering business. A few hours later, Joran elaborated, saying he had lived in Aruba for the past 17 years, where his father owned a cement factory. He seemed anxious, and when he wasn't sleeping, he was lost in thought. Often, he was shivering, most likely because he was underdressed in his shorts and t-shirt. Six hours into the trip, about halfway, Joran asked the group if they could stop so that he could buy a Peruvian newspaper. He was told Mokekwa would be their pit stop about half an hour away. Around 7 a.m. they arrived in Mokekwa and the drivers were hungry. They wanted to stop at a cafe on the square for breakfast. Joran did not want to join them. He said that he was not hungry, that he would wait for them. And he reminded them, hey, don't forget to get me the, the newspaper. So over breakfast, the three cab drivers talk about their passenger. There was something something suspicious about him. The consensus was that he was likely carrying drugs. John Oswaldo picked up a copy of the newspaper El Ojo, which is in, in English would be the eye, if we translate literally. And it handed it to Van der Sloot as he climbed back into the minivan. Again underway, Duran began spinning a a tale saying that he had stabbed a man with a lot of money. He was on his way to Santiago, Chile, where his girlfriend was waiting. The taxi drivers were speechless. Perhaps their roommate with his rudimentary Spanish had meant something else. So they were keeping silent because these red flags were popping um, up. After passing through a police checkpoint in Tomasiri, Joran said he needed to urinate, and the van pulled into a rest area, and everyone but John Williams got out to use the bathroom. John Williams had just been awoken from a nap break, and he noticed Joran outside the van's window. He was shifting his laptop from his black backpack to his beige duffel bag. Outside, his twin also detected Joran rearranging his luggage, removing some clothes from the duffel bag, 
before dumping the rest of the contents into a garbage gully beside the road. He also threw out a bag of marijuana before climbing back into the van. Around noon, the men arrived in Tacna, another hectic and dangerous outpost despite its palm-lined avenues. This was the final stop, about 20 miles from the Chilean border. A visit to the Scotian Bank was in order, and Jovan had only advanced the men $175 of their $500, so he still owed the drivers the remaining $325. He was good for it, he insisted. Nevertheless, John Oswaldo accompanied him to the bank machine and watched intently as Joran inserted a white bank card with the Maestro logo. The scream showed there was no balance. Joran said, no, no worries. I have another bank card from the Bank of Aruba. That account, he claimed, had a balance of 9,800 euros, which is almost 13,000 American dollars but he had to make his withdrawal from a bank-authorized ATM. If the men wanted to be paid, they would have to take him to Arica, Arica, Chile, where a bank of Aruba automated teller awaited. So now the cabbies were extremely apprehensive. They had been driving all night, and they still have the 475-mile return trip to Ica to make. None of the three had made the border crossing before, so they inquired at the taxi terminal as to what documents were necessary to pr- proceed. The paperwork was straightforward, only DNI cards, which is the standard Peruvian national identification um, cards, were required. Local cabbies told them a typical fare for the strip would be 20 nuevos soles, which is about $7. So they said to Joran, we'll take you, but it would be 300 nuevos soles, which is $100. $100 would get him to Chile. Joran did not make a counteroffer. He simply agreed. At 1.30 in the afternoon, the group, smelly, worn, dirty, strained, they fell into the van for the last leg. And now this... Uh, this Peruvia Chilean border, they have to cross a town called Santa Rosa. And then the, the 20 final stretch um, basically is the Atacama Desert. And the Atacama Desert looks like sort of like the surface of Mars. It's m- most of its 600 mile stretch is on the Chilean side of the border. The Tacna region of the desert is the only part of the desert that is in southern Peru. And they have to go through that. So they have to get to the border complex at Santa Rosa, which is like a glass and metal structure in this, you know, desert. And outside of the building, there's security guards flanking the roads and man, manning the booths that stop the vehicular traffic. Inside, there's armed immigration officers taking care of routine business and any uh, security problems. So now Jovan was staring out the window of the minivan. He watched the complex uh, building, uh, looking at it more threatening as it approached. His heart was pounding because he didn't know if the Interpol had already marked him as a fugitive and put out an alert. 
However, only Jonas Waldo was the only one who couldn't uh, go and, and cross the border because his DNI card was too damaged to allow him passage into Chile. So he volunteered to wait in Peru while the others proceeded. Just the three, John Williams Piscante, Carlos Uribe Pretil, and Duran van der Sloot, exited the car, entered the, the building, which is, it was the, pretty much the final frontier, and they registered with immigration control as required by Peruvian law for all international travelers. He had made it out of Peru and silently vowed to himself to never return. May 31st, 2005, Arica, Chile. Having successfully negotiated the Peruvian border crossing, Joran van der Sloot was confident he would pass through the Chilean uh, customs several hundred yards ahead with similar ease. At 3 p.m. that Monday, a Chilean border patrol officer stamped his passport. Minutes later, another officer waved the white minivan driven by taxi driver John Williams Bisconte through the highway security booths. As the three proceeded south on the Pan-American Highway, en route, Joran switched his clothes. He exchanged his blue shorts and short sleeve t-shirt with beige shorts and a black turtleneck. The van encountered its first Chilean army checkpoint within 10 minutes of finally being on the way. These guard posts were insufferable for Joan, but the poker phrase he had managed throughout these brief delays in Peru selfed him well again. Finally, the outskirts of Arica loomed. Arica was an important port city in the Pacific Ocean. John Williams found a parking place near El Morro de Arica, uh, which is a huge outcropping of burnt Siena rock that dominated the skyline, and it was the site of a monumental battle between Peru and Chile more than 130 years ago. At 4.30 p.m., the banks had all closed, but ATMs were available outside four or five bank buildings. Jovan tried his card at them all, but he was denied. He needed a human teller, he lamented. Waiting until the next day was out of the question. John Oswaldo was stuck at the border. John Williams had been traveling with this scoundrel longer than any passenger in his career. Jovan began from looking through his pockets and he found uh, 288 Nuevo Soles, which is about um, 100 American dollars. He promised to wire the driver the outstanding balance in the morning. John Williams was furious. This payment plus promissory note was unacceptable. Voluntarily or compelled by force, Jovan added his Ferrari brand watch worth more than 7000 by his account to the settlement. He gave them a digital camera without a battery, a blue Nokia cell phone that was missing its SIM card, two cell phone chargers, a paperback a biography of Al Capone, uh, a bottle of a cologne, uh, food powder, a metal tin of, of food powder, a uh, brown leather portfolio uh, case from the Wyndham Hotel, and a Nicorette inhaler. 
Duran even threw in the red, white, and black striped short sleep polo shirt that he had been wearing when he left the hotel tag for the last time on the morning of May 30th. With a shove and a curse, John Williams, Carlos Uribe, they slammed the van doors and left Duran behind, still with his stories and lies, but without his watch. They retrieved John Oswaldo at the border at 6 p.m. They stopped in Santa Rosa for dinner and divided up the loot. Twelve hours later, back in Ica, on the morning of June 1st, the brothers both tired, underbathed. They were just delighted to be home to business as usual. Even though they have been swindled, they have inflated their fare enough to at least have extracted an acceptable profit. The following morning, a Channel 4 news segment playing in their living room interrupted the relaxed mood. The story was about the murder of a 21-year-old woman, Stephanie Flores, in Lima, 150 miles away and the face of the rogue passenger stared back at them in a photo on the television screen. He was the prime suspect, the news announced, calling him a presumed murderer. The story detailed the murder of the daughter of a famous race car driver and how the suspect had fled, leaving her lifeless body in a hotel room. He was also implicated in the disappearance of a young American woman on vacation in the Caribbean, five years earlier, assumed to be murder as well. The Piscontes were dumbstruck. They have aided a fugitive, a murderer, in escaping Peru. As they flipped the channels, the story was everywhere. There was even an American newscast discussing the case. They began to comprehend that they have become part of an international incident. They had just spent the last 24 hours with him in extremely close quarters, First an Ica, giving the stranger a solitary ride, then haggling and handshaking in Nazca, then storytelling, even joking and laughing en route to Arica. The Odyssey had ended in a spit and a curse. Across town, Carlos Pratil had heard the news over the radio and immediately he called the Piscante home to speak with the brothers. But their line was busy. Moments later, John Oswaldo called him back, and Oswaldo sounded nervous. He confirmed that from news reports, it appeared that Juran, the Dutch citizen they had just driven to Chile, was the prime suspect in the murder of Stephanie Flores back in Lima. John Oswaldo announced the police, that the police and the media just arrived to, at their house. The taxi drivers had not been hard to locate, Immigration of officials had entered their deed and I numbers into a logbook at the border crossing. The three men were scared and initially they gave police conflicted accounts of their ride to Chile. But after hearing investigators rattle off a long list of possible criminal charges, including crime against the administration of justice, crime against jurisdictional function, material concealment, and omission of reporting to police, there were more forthcoming. By agreeing to give a stranger a ride, the three Peruvian taxi drivers had unwittingly become key witnesses in one of the most high-profile murder cases Peru had ever seen. June 3rd, 2010, Santiago, Chile. In Chile, 
as in all of South America, June was a winter month. The Casablanca Valley, in which Jovan now found himself in a cab heading toward Santiago, was always temperate. By midday, the cooling low-lying clouds trapped each night by the snow-capped Andes to the east and the coastal range to the west had burned off, and the temperature was a pleasant 73 degrees. Jovan had been in the coastal town of Viña del Mar when he hired the cab. He was familiar with Viña del Mar. It was renowned for its nightlife and gambling and was supposed to have been the final stop on the Latin American poker tour before the powerful 8.8 magnitude earthquake that past February had compelled the organizers to relocate the event to Peru. Three days had passed since Duran had gone uh, and fooled the Peruvian taxi drivers back in Arica. Since then, he had traveled nearly 1,200 miles down the Chilean coast to Viña del Mar. As he climbed into the back seat of a private taxi he had hired to take him to the capital city of Santiago de Chile, about 85 miles southeast on Highway 68. Despite what he had told the cab drivers, he somehow still had access to funds. Jovan was filled with anxiety that morning. He had seen his picture in the newspaper, and he knew he was a wanted man. Still, he was determined to get to Santiago, hoping he could disappear among the 5 million people that called the city home. From there, he would be able to pursue escape options to either Aruba or Holland. The cab sped through the vineyards and wineries of the Casablanca Valley, and just before 12.30 p.m., the taxi entered the Zapata Tunnel, a one-mile long mountain pass just west of Curacaví. On the other side, the highway widens into multiple feeder lanes as it approaches the massive toll plaza bisecting the road. Spotting the booths ahead, Duran crouched down in the back seat, trying to make himself invisible as the taxi driver slowed to pay the toll. But his hide made hide hiding impossible, and his odd behavior drew the attention of the toll collector. All toll, toll booth attendants had been placed on high alert since Chilean authorities had notified them of a suspected murderer on the run from Peru the previous day. This passenger seemed to resemble the description that had been provided and an alert witness contacted the highway authority. Within moments, blue and white police vehicles converged on the scene, and Duran's fugitive status came to an abrupt halt. Officers didn't know what to expect when they ordered Van der Sloot out of the vehicle. Many were surprised by his, by his indifference. He looked almost relieved that this flight had come to an end and did not resist in any way. Journalists had been tipped off that Stephanie Flores' alleged killer had been captured on Highway 68 outside of Curacaví. Just before 3 p.m., reporters got their first look at El Holandés, the Dutchman, the name given to Van der Sloot by the Peruvian press, who had a hard time um, pronouncing his Dutch surname, Bundesluth. Joran looked agitated as he climbed out of the black unmarked police vehicle and into the custody of three Chilean 
detectives. Reporters used to work in the crime beat were surprised that Juran, a man suspected of a brutal murder, was not in handcuffs. Juran didn't try to hide his face from the cameras as he had in Aruba. He looked confident and walked across the Oswald parking lot with a swagger. For more than five years, the Dutchman had endured the cameras, the microphones, and the questions. Today, he had nothing to gain, no financial upside to speak into the press. Since Natalie's disappearance, Joran had cashed in on his supposed role in her tragedy. For the past five years, he had confessed to different versions of the truth about what had actually happened the night Natalie went missing. He had sold her into sexual slavery for $10,000. She had snorted cocaine and falling off a hotel balcony and was disposed of in a swampy lake. And that his father was an accomplice to his silence. None of the claims had ever been substantiated. Inside police headquarters, Chilean investigators sat down with Joan to take some basic information. They had no plans to interrogate him, merely to process him before expelling him from the country. The Chileans decided to forego an extradition proceeding and they chose to handle the situation as a straightforward immigration matter. All foreigners entering Chile were required to fill out basic paperwork addressing two issues. What was the, the purpose of the visit and what is the local dom domicile of the visitor? Jovan had lied on both counts and claiming that he had entered the country as a tourist, which he clearly wasn't, and had provided no valid hotel reservations. He was an undesirable whose only real purpose for entering the country was to escape murder charges in Peru. Jovan announced to the investigators that he wanted to make a statement in English so there would be no misunderstanding. He was innocent, he insisted, and wanted authorities to know what had really happened in Lima. Just after 9 p.m. that Thursday evening, Joran sat down with the Chilean detectives. For the next several hours, he spun fantastic tale about meeting Stephanie Flores, how the two had fallen victim to a pair of current artists posing as members of the Peruvian National Police. Joran told the officers that his reason for the journey from Aruba to Peru on May 12th was for the tournament. Unfortunately for Joran, investigators examining his worn brown Dutch passport noted the Peruvian entry visa was actually dated on May 14th. The date was the first of his many lies. Jovan explained to his interpreter that after flying into Lima, he had checked into the Hotel TAC, which he described as a three-star hotel in Miraflores, not far from the Atlantic City uh, Casino. Chilean detectives kept close mouth about what they already knew. Capitan uh, Juan Cayan, homicide detective in Peru, had updated them with the latest developments in Lima. Jovan told detectives that he had not had any problems with immigration or airport security when he had flown into Peru, even though he claimed to be carrying $25,000 on his person 
when he stepped off the Avianca flight at Lima's Jorge Chavez International Airport. He said, and quote, I stayed on almost all nights in the casinos, sleeping during the day, eating at a restaurant, and mostly playing poker. This is where I met this girl, Stephanie. She sat at the table, and right away, she started talking to me. She wanted me to teach her to play. She told me her father had money, and that she was studying, and that she was not interested in guys, end quote. He was vague about where and when he had met her, uh, but had a clear memory of a terrifying incident in which he and Stephanie were brutalized by Peruvian cops. He claimed that the two were on their way to a casino in Miraflores when they were stopped by two men traveling in a white car. The men were wearing police uniforms and badges, and both Jovan and Stephanie had assumed they were cops. Stephanie pulled over to the side of the road, and the two assailants demanded money. They said give them, you know, to give them the cash or else. So Jovan said, quote, I offered them $1,000 and they laughed. I then offered $4,000 and they agreed. Then one of them told me to give him something as a souvenir. So I gave him one of my bracelets and, that I brought from Thailand and they let us go, end quote. Jovan described the men as dark-skinned, does that ring a bell? And said they spoke only Spanish. It is hard for me to provide an exact description of the uniforms, he said. Most tourists reported assaults and robberies to their embassies, but Joran claimed that at such an early hour, the office would have been closed. His only desire was to find a cup of coffee and go to his hotel room with Stephanie, forgetting about the assault. He said he purchased some coffee at a place called Holly's Coffee around the corner from his hotel, then headed up to his room with Stephanie to play some poker online. Jovan told the Chilean investigators that he and Stephanie were not even safe once they were inside room 309. He said, quote, a man came out of the bathroom holding a knife in his hand and blocked the exit. Another man with a pistol in his belt was on the bed. The man with the knife told me to shut up, but Stephanie yelled out and the man with the knife punched her in the face, causing her nose to bleed. When I offered uh, to pick up the money, they agreed, but the man with the pistol said that I should remember that they had Stephanie, end quote. Jovan said he was certain the man with the pistol was one of the police assailants who had robbed them on the roadside. He said, quote, I left the room, went downstairs, and exited the hotel without speaking to anybody. I went to Stephanie's car and thought about fleeing, but then I decided to come back, quote. Jovan admitted that he had lied to the dirty cops who were holding Stephanie hostage about needing to find an ATM. When he returned to the hotel tack from his ATM run, Joran said he realized he had left his room key upstairs. Stopping by the reception, he tried to remain composed, asking the uniformed man at the front desk for a spare. The man was a member of the housekeeping staff. He agreed to escort Joran to the third floor, where he handed him the key and walked away. Joran described how he knocked on the hotel room door several times, 
No one answered, so he let himself in using the key he had just been given by the hotel employee. The man with the pistol, said Joran, quote, was very angry with Stephanie and was covering her mouth with his hand. And he was angry with me for coming back into the room without giving him a warning. Jovan said he handed the crook, uh, crooked policeman a wad of cash. He said, I gave him $10,000 and hoped that would have closed the deal. End quote. Jovan had assumed that he and Stephanie would be released, but the man demanded, uh, demanded more money. And he said, quote, I told them that I could get more money, so I went downstairs again, but the woman at the front desk told me that I needed to move Stephanie's car, end quote. Stephanie had left her black Jeep parked in front of the hotel lobby, and Duran's dilemma intensified. He did not want to leave her car to get towed or ticketed, but to move her car, he would need her keys, and they were back in room 309. Back upstairs, he went to borrow the keys, but Stephanie's captors were now furious. Why had he come back empty-handed? He had not brought any money. Joran said the men began shouting at Stephanie in Spanish, but they were speaking so quickly that he could not make out what they were saying. And then Joran said, quote, They told me to gather my things and go, go back to my country and speak to no one, end quote. He shoved his personal belongings into two bags. In his haste, he had left a lot of things behind, mostly clothing, but he had to follow the armed thug's directive. He closed the door and fled, leaving his abandoned property, his two assailants, and Stephanie in the room. Before departing, Duran said that Stephanie handed him the keys to her Jeep. He described driving around for several minutes before realizing he did not know his way around the city and abandoned the jeep several blocks from the hotel. He then flagged down a cab and headed for the airport. Jovan said he did not call the police because the assailants were members of law enforcement, and he was scared. Chilean authorities were not interested in interrogating him, only getting him out of the country. Maybe he thought this would be the best chance for a sympathetic audience. His tale of woe continued. Although he had purchased a round-trip ticket from Aruba, he wanted to change the reservation and book a flight to Argentina instead. Unfortunately, he claimed when he arrived at the airport, a reservation agent told him he couldn't book a seat on a flight until the following day. Frustrated, he left the terminal, flagged down a taxi driver, and asked him to drive him to Chile, some 900 miles away. The driver had politely declined and instead drove him to the bus terminal. And then Jovan said, quote, When I arrived, there were no express buses to Chile, but only local buses. End quote. He then walked outside where another cabbie agreed to take him to Ica, Peru for $500. Never mentioning the Piscante twins or Carlos Uribe, Jovan told Chilean investigators that in Ica, he was able to arrange private taxi service with another driver to the Chilean border for another $500. After crossing the border in Santa Rosa, Joran said he stayed in a small hotel in Arica. He claimed that after spending the night in Arica, he took a bus to Autofagasta, uh, which is uh, a mining town more than 800 miles north 
of the Chilean capital of Santiago. And from there, he caught a flight on uh, PLL Airlines, and he arrived uh, on, to, in Santiago on June 2nd. After landing in Santiago, Joran said he reached out to a poker body to let him know he was in town. And he said, I don't remember his name. He told me I could stay in his home. And after we had a cup of drinks, I spent the night. But first, I did a little sightseeing in Santiago. That's what Joran said. Despite being a friend, Joran claimed his host had taken advantage of his situation. Joran said, quote, the man charged me for the night, he complained. The following morning, Joran wanted to do a little gambling in Santiago before he went to Viña del Mar by a public bus. He took a taxi from his friend's house to the Monticello Grand Casino, but the casino was closed, having sustained considerable damage in the big quake. Before leaving for Viña del Mar for a one-night gambling stand, he logged on to his laptop and learned about Stephanie's fate. He said, quote, in the morning, after checking my email, I learned what had happened to Stephanie. I got in touch with my mother, and she told me to speak with the authorities to resolve this matter, end quote. Authorities had captured him crouching in the back of a cab with as substantial a makeover as he could manage on the run. And now he was claiming to have turned himself in voluntarily on the advice of his mother. True, Duran had phoned his mother the previous day while on the run in Chile. He had telephoned her several days earlier from Peru, claiming to have been the victim of a police kidnapping. Duran had sounded scared, almost manic. He described meeting a young woman in Lima and claimed they had been kidnapped and robbed by two Peruvian men who were posing as police officers. The assailants had shown them a photograph of Natalie Holloway during the terrifying ordeal. Anita had grown accustomed to her son's fantastic tales and bouts of paranoia. This wasn't the first time he had called home with such an incredible story. He was always broke. He was always had a tale of woe. His wallet was stolen. Someone had broken into his apartment. He had a gambling debt and there were people after him. The stories were endless. Anita was never sure when he was telling the truth. When Durant called her back on June 2nd, he claimed that he was in uh, a taxi traveling south to Chile. He sounded scared. By then, Anita had heard the news broadcast about the dead woman that was found in the hotel room. The young woman had been murdered on May 30th, the five-year anniversary of Natalie Holloway's disappearance. And Anita told Duran that there was an international warrant out for his arrest and that a girl had died. Anita had urged her son to go to the nearest police station and surrender. Now sitting before the Chilean police officers, Duran was insisting that he had been trying to follow his mother's instructions and was en route to a police station when he was apprehended at a toll plaza in Curacavi. One of the officers asked him if this was his first time in trouble with the law. And Joran said, quote, I have had problems with the authorities since the 2005 case in Aruba, but after being detained for three months, I was released without charges. 
Since then, I have not had problems in Aruba, but I did in the Netherlands, where they tried to make it appear as if I was involved in prostitution with young girls in Thailand. But the story was not true, end quote. Jovan was convinced that they would see that he was innocent. He had not murdered Stephanie Flores. He announced that he simply wanted to go home to Aruba. Should the Chilean government decide to expel him from the country, he wanted to be sure he wasn't returned to Peru. His life was in danger there. Chilean immigration officials informed Joran that on the following day, he was going to be expelled at the Santa Rosa border crossing, the place where he had entered the country three days earlier. Joran, defiant and hostile, refused to, start to sign his statement. We'll be right back. June 2nd, 2010, Lima, Peru. Shortly after 1 p.m. that Wednesday, Dr. Juan Martin Villalobos finished uh, and signed off on the autopsy and released Stephanie's remains to her family. This examination had concluded that the Bryburn College senior had suffered a violent and protracted death. She had been choked, beaten, and finally smothered. Hundreds of mourners lined up outside the church to pay their respects to the Flores family. The mourners included friends and classmates of Stephanie, as well as friends of Ricardo and powerful people in Lima's political and social circles. Lima's mayor and Peru's minister of defense were there. The young woman so brutally murdered had touched the hearts of the Peruvian people. Like Natalie Holloway five years earlier, she had become everybody's daughter and her funeral belonged to everyone. In the middle of the burial mass, Ricardo was informed that Joran van der Sloot, his daughter's alleged killer, had been apprehended in Chile. Members of the press had also learned about the arrest in Chile and wanted a reaction from the family. Ricardo was grateful for the press, knowing it, that he had expedited the suspect's capture. He thanked law enforcement for their professionalism throughout his, his family's ordeal. He also begged political leaders on both sides of the border not to delay in returning Jovan van der Sloot to Lima. The Flores family had buried their daughter, Stephanie, but the Holloways were still searching for Natalie. Five years have passed since her disappearance, and they were making no progress. June 4th, 2010, Chile-Peru border crossing. Joran van der Sloot was in handcuffs when he arrived back at the Santa Rosa crossing that Friday afternoon. Security was enormous, both the Chilean and Peruvian authorities providing extra uh, officers for transfer of the high-profile fugitive. Joran emerged from a Chilean police vehicle wearing the same outfit as the previous afternoon when he had been captured, khaki pants and a black hooded sweatshirt. Interpol agents had outfitted him in a, a drab military green bulletproof vest. Inside, he was examined by two doctors who certified him to be in good health with no indications of recent scratches, bruises, or traumas. He was lucid and his vital signs were normal. 
At 3 p.m., he was officially transferred to Peruvian authorities. Joran was read his rights and given a copy of the resolution that had been signed by a judge in Lima on June 2nd, ordering his preliminary detention for 24 hours. At 4.30 p.m., a convoy uh, of 16 police vehicles departed Tacna and headed north to on the Pan-American Highway. And Duran was handcuffed, sat in the backseat of an unmarked SUV between two Interpol agents. Ironically, he was retracing the route of his escape when he had traveled with the naive cabbies for his trip. He had no need to negotiate a fee this time. The caravan arrived in Lima the following morning, June 5th. Interpol, the lead law enforcement agency since Duran's transfer at the border, now deliver him into the custody of Captain Juan Cayan and his homicide team. At 2 p.m., official business began. Cayan and a representative from the prosecutor's office faced off against Duran and a small team provided for him. He had a Dutch translator living in Peru, uh, his name was uh, Maurice Staines, a native from Holland, but a Peru resident. He had been dispatched by the Dutch embassy. A defense lawyer, Alberto Paimalullo, had also been assigned to him. Joran was advised of his rights. His brief interview offered very little information. He relied on the story he had told the Chilean police that either thugs with fake badges or real police who practiced off-duty thuggery, were waiting for Stephanie at the Hotel TAC, demanding demanding his documents and 1,000 revosoles. He did not explain how this was inconsistent with the video images from outside room 309, where he and Stephanie entered the room together, but ultimately he alone exited at least twice. The next day, during an interview, Kayan pulled a large envelope from a desk drawer. And one by one, he placed the 8 by 10 color pictures of Stephanie Flores' crime scene on his desk. Duran watched as more photos were spread out, his this time including stills from the surveillance camera, some of Duran and Stephanie entering room 309 together, others of him exiting alone. Duran smoked and said nothing. He watched the detective walking around his desk to retrieve a bag of evidence from another drawer. Kayan asked, uh, pulling out a long sleeve button down shirt stained with blood. Perhaps you recognize this, Kayan said, and he held the garment close to Joran's face. Joran finally reacted, recoiling from the rancid stench. He motioned for the captain to remove the garment. Kayan continued to wave it, the very shirt Stephanie Flores had been wearing when discovered by Adelie Marchena, the hotel tax receptionist. And Joran said, take it away. It was the stench, not his remorse, that was making him nauseated. And Kayan said, Señor Van, uh, Van der Sloot, do you know Stephanie Flores? And this time, Joran admitted he did, staring down at, at the floor. And then Captain Kayan said, 
Now, I ask you again, my friend, to tell me where you were beginning at 6 p.m. on Monday, uh, May 29th until 5 a.m. on May 30th. So Joran said, quote, on May 29th at 6 p.m., I went to the Atlantic City Casino to play blackjack and poker. I drank alcohol and whiskey colas. I believe from 6 p.m. until 2 a.m. I play blackjack and between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. I play poker. Kayan asked, do you know a man named Elton Garcia? Referring to the Uruguayan poker player who had tried to contact Duran at the hotel the night Stephanie's body was discovered. Elton Garcia is a friend of mine, said Duran. I met him at the Atlantic City Casino two weeks ago. And then he said, and Stephanie Flores, how do you know her? And Duran answered, quote, I also met Stephanie at the Atlantic City. I met her on or around May 27. She's an acquaintance. I have not known her for that long, end quote. So Captain Kayan asked, tell us in detail how the crime against Stephanie Flores occurred inside room 309 of the hotel tab. And Duran said, end quote, on May 30th, 2010, at around 2 a.m., I was playing poker at a table with several people when Stephanie approached the table and started to play as well. I played in her presence for about two or three hours, and then around 5 a.m., she mentioned that she wanted to play on the internet and asked me to go with her. We continued to play a little longer at the casino, and then we left for the hotel tag when I was, where I was staying. We went to her car, which was a black four by four. We arrived at the hotel around 5.30 a.m. We went to my room and we played poker on my laptop. It was at that moment that I opened my email and I noticed a message saying, I am going to kill you, Mongolito, in reference to the Holloway case. So I talked about the case with Stephanie and I indicated that five years ago, I had been detained as a suspect in connection with the disappearance of this girl. Joran said, he, quote, he claimed that Stephanie became angered upon leaving, uh, learning of his involvement in the case. And he said, quote, about half, about half an hour of having been in room 309 during our conversation, Stephanie struck, uh, struck me on the left hand side of my head with her fist. And I impulsively struck her in the face with my right elbow exactly above the nose. There was blood everywhere. I thought she was passed out. It affected me so much that I grabbed her by the neck with both hands, and I choked her for about two minutes. Then at that moment, I thought about what I was doing. I stood up thinking, what am I going to do now? I had blood on my shirt, and there was blood on the bed. So I took my shirt, and I put it on her face pressing really hard until I killed Stephanie. Then I thought, what am I going to do? I exited the hotel tag, but the girl at the reception told me I have to move the car. So I returned to room 309, and at first, I thought about fleeing the hotel. I took my bags, I drove the car, but I don't remember. I just continued on the street. I don't know where I was going, but I took a ride out of the hotel. I drove for about five minutes, then I dumped the car. I took a cab to Jorge Chavez Airport. Then I said to myself, better not take a plane. I took a taxi to the bus station. There, I took another taxi, paying the sum of 600 soles 
toward another city that I don't remember the name of. And then from there, I used the services of another taxi to the city of Nazca with an individual who drove me for two hours to the following city, paying the sum of 100 soles. Upon arriving, I struck up a conversation with the driver of the taxi about the homicide of Stephanie Flores, and I said, I have committed a homicide, I have murdered a person, and I want to exit Peru. And he responded, wait until we get to the next city, and then the driver told me, my friends are not here now, perhaps it's better that you take a bus. And then I said, you told me you were going to take me to Arica, do it, please. To which he said, just come down and let's go to eat something. We went to eat together and then his friends arrived and he chatted a bit with them. And then he came to me and he said that for $1,500, they would take me. And then I responded, okay. But at that moment, I only had 500 in cash. So we left I, and I told them that I was going to get the rest from an ATM. And from there, we got in a white vehicle that was like a minivan. But while on the road, the highway police stopped us asking for documents. After that, the people who ha I had hired to take me to Arica recommended that I throw away my luggage. So I threw away my beige sports uh, bag. And after that, they told me they were not going to take me to Arica. And if I didn't give them the following specific um Items. They wanted a cellular phone, a watch, two bottles of perfume, books, clothing, um, a red t-shirt, and a pair of jeans, some designer, and other regular ones. And upon arrival at the border control in Tacna, one of the individuals got out of the vehicle because immigration said that his document, the DNI, the DNI card was false, counterfeit, so he remained there. The only ones who crossed the border with me were the two Peruvians, the same ones that brought me from Nazca. And so, in this manner, we arrived in Chile. At around 4 p.m. on my May 31st, 2010, I tried to withdraw money from the ATM in the sum of $1,000, but the machine only allowed me to take out $500. So they asked how I was going to pay the rest, and in order to avoid problems with them, I told them I had two watches. One of them was a Ferrari brand and valued at around $7,000. And I promised that I was going to call them on the following day and send uh, via Western Union the $500. I took a room at a hotel in the city of Arica. It was small. And I don't remember the name. And then the following day, I went to the bus terminal in Arica, where I took a bus to Antofagasta, where I arrived on June 2nd. In that city, I took a plane of the airline P, uh, PAL to the city of Santiago. When I arrived at 2 p.m., I went to a place called Vasco da Gama, where I took a shower in a hotel and left my things. And I took a taxi to the city of Santiago. The, the following day, I saw a picture of myself in the newspaper 
and how they were looking for a Dutchman who was an assassin. So I said to the cabbie, please take me to a police station because I have just seen that the police are looking for me because of a homicide. So we found a police station in Vasto da Gama. I spoke with the personnel there, and I said, I have just seen in the paper that the Peruvian police want me for homicide. So they look at me really strangely. They told me to wait a minute, and the policewoman said, you better go to another police station because we know nothing about this. So I started talking with a cabbie, and I said, I have to surrender. And he said, I have a cousin that is a chief of police in Santiago. If you want, I can call him. So I said, okay, call him. And so the cabbie was on the phone for five minutes, and then he gave me the phone. With my command of the Spanish language, I spoke with him, and I explained that I have seen in the newspaper that I was a one that I was wanted in Peru. He asked me where I was from, and I said, I'm from Holland. Then he said, I will call you back. And he called back. He told me to go to Central Police Station in Santiago. During the whole trip, he called on the phone. The taxi driver told me that his cousin, the police chief, told him that he was going to come over for the sake of my security. An hour went by, and the police came to the cab in a regular vehicle, not a police car, where I got in and I was driven to the immigration office in Santiago, where they told me that I wasn't being apprehended, that I could do what I wanted. One of the people from immigration told me that Peru has put an extradition request to which I responded that I didn't agree with that and I needed to speak with a lawyer. They said that it was out of their control, that it was a decision from the government. They kept telling me that I wasn't being detained and that it was above them and they had to give me back to the country the, uh, through which I came in, meaning Peru. And that's the way I arrived in Peru, end quote. Kayan took in the fantastic story without expression. He knew some of the pieces were different uh, from the evidence, but he made no challenges. After a pause, Kayan changed the subject to the murder weapon. And he says, do you use any type of blunt object to kill Stephanie? And Joran replied, no. And then Kayan asked him, can you tell me in which areas of the face and body did you strike her and how many times? And Joran said, I only struck her above uh, the nose with my right elbow. Kayan again pulled the long sleeve beige shirt that was soiled and blood from the evidence bag. He said, please indicate if the garment that we are showing you named Brand One Star Converse is the same garment that you were wearing on May 30th and the one you used to asphyxiate Stephanie. Andrew said, yes, it's the same shirt I had on the casino and the one that I used to smother Stephanie until she was dead. So Joran claimed that he first elbowed Stephanie in the nose hard, and then he climbed on top of her. He struck her head, wrestled her to the ground, smothered her with his shirt. So they asked her, could she have been alive after that? And Joran said it was conceivable, admitting that 
she may have agonized for a while. He was unable to elaborate, remembering the time after the attack as a blur. So then they ask him, so what happened to the contents of the bag after Stephanie was dead? And Duran said, quote, I realized that Stephanie had money, but I didn't know about their credit cards or how much money. But I knew that she had had exchanged the chips for cash before leaving the casino. So after killing her, I took the cards and the money. Joran's response supported Kayan's theory. Stephanie's murder was motivated by robbery alone. Joran was a consummate gambler, strapped for cash, who opportunely selected Stephanie. He knew she had been a winner that evening and lured her to his hotel room to rob her of the winnings and her credit cards. Her jewelry, a ring of pale gold earrings and watch did not interest him. Jovan had no cuts or scratches on his body, yet he claimed that Stephanie had, without warning, punched him in the face. After the murder, Kayan surmised Jovan stole the jeep hoping to find money in the vehicle. Jovan's explanation for abandoning the jeep, the jeep it, he did not, it was that he did not know the city. So Kayan was hoping that Joran would reveal his motive in his own words. So Kayan asked, so what motive did you have when you killed Stephanie that morning? And Joran answered, I don't know, but the moment that she struck me in the head, I just lost control. I didn't know what I was doing. End quote. So Kayan asked him, why after killing Stephanie, do you flee to Chile? And why? In that country, did you decide to turn yourself in when you could have done, uh, you could have done it in Peru? And Duran said, "Quote: It wasn't thinking. I wasn't thinking clearly. I only wanted to to leave the scene of the crime as quickly as possible and leave the country. But when I arrived in Chile and I saw my picture in the newspaper, I decided to turn myself into the authorities in Chile." So they asked him, so why after killing Stephanie on May 30th, did you leave the hotel room only to return with two cups of coffee in your hands? So Duran answered uh, with a stare because he didn't have an answer. He didn't know an answer. So Kayan asked him, did you ever think of hiding the body of the victim after killing uh, Stephanie in, you know, in the hotel. And Jovan said, quote, yes, it crossed my mind at one point to hide the body, but I couldn't take the side anymore. There was too much blood in the room. End quote. So Kayan asked him, how do you explain the lesions that are on her face and several parts of her body, as well as the cranial fracture that was found during the autopsy? And Jovan, he just shrugged his shoulders and said, quote, I don't know, because there wasn't much of a struggle. She was on the bed when I struck her with my right elbow hard, and I think her head went backwards and hit the wall. Then she started bleeding, so I immediately positioned myself on top of her, and with both hands, I started to strangle her, keeping her like that for a minute. After that, I threw her to the ground because she was still bleeding 
And it was then that I took my shirt off and put it over her face and kept pressing. I don't know for how long, and in this manner, I think I killed her. Unquote. So Captain Kanyan asked him, what did you what did you put on, keeping in mind the shirt that you had was bloody, what did you put on after killing Stephanie? And Joran said, quote, I wore a V-neck t-shirt colored red and with black uh, black or white uh, red stripes. And quote, uh, Captain Kayan said, so you said that after killing Stephanie, you observed a great deal of blood in the room. Can you indicate if you cleaned the floor? And if so, what do you use to clean it? And Joran said, quote, I use a bedspread and the sheets to clean the blood off the floor. And I only wiped the floor, end quote. So next came questions about the fight, uh, the flight through Peru to Chile, described the physical uh, characteristics of the people that facilitated um, his escape to the city of Arica, and if they solicited money or goods in exchange for leaving the country after they knew that they they had failed Stephanie, he killed Stephanie. So Jovan said, quote, there were three individuals who took me to Arica. Kayan, end quote. Kayan showed Jovan a photo lineup that included mug shots of the three Peruvian taxi drivers who had transported him from Nazca to Tacna. And they asked him, do you recognize anyone? And he studied the photographs and Jovan pointed to the one of Carlos Uribe Pretil. He said, that's the guy. And then they ask him again, why did you kill Stephanie? And Joran said, quote, after I struck her, I was afraid that she was going to go to the police and I was going to be detained. It was an impulsive act, I think. I wanted to kill her, but, but I wasn't thinking. Quote. So Kayan said, the autopsy shows the presence of amphetamines in her body. Did you give her anything to drink that contained amphetamines? And Joran said, nope. And then he asked, how did you obtain the money that you used to leave the country? And Joran answered, quote, I arrived in this country with $25,000, but I didn't declare what I had on me. In Chile, I withdrew $500 from the ATM on June 2nd from the Banco Santander, I believe. My account is called Click to Pay. It is an organization that makes money online available. I have a card, but it's in Chile with my belongings, end quote. So Captain Kayan asked him, what is the origin of the money that you brought to Peru, the $25,000, and why didn't you declare the money? And Joran claimed he had been working with an Israeli mentalist, Yuri Geller, and that for $25,000, he was going to expose an online gambling uh, fraud or Geller's, on Geller's live TV program. So when Joran failed to tell the police, um, or what Joran uh, failed to tell the police, were that the significant details of the Yuri Geller connection so to begin, um, which is a, a remarkable coincidence, Joran's story had Yuri Geller, Geller advancing him $10,000 in cash 
and $50,000 in a wire transfer, which was the exact transactions as in the extortion of Beth Tweedy two weeks earlier. Duran had been in contact with a TV host, but not until after he had arrived in Peru. They did discuss Duran going undercover to investigate online gambling fraud, but no advancement had been secured. The offer was not for $25,000, but for $600 and one day ticket for Duran to travel back to Aruba and his ticket was available before the brutal attack on Stephanie Flores. Geller had a plan to obtain a confession from Joran. Before the interrogation ended, Kayan offered Joran's defense attorney an opportunity to ask questions. Joran's current court-appointed attorney, Luz Romero, posed to. She asked, did you turn yourself in of your own volition? Or were the Piscante brothers and Uribe Pretil the ones that suggested you turn yourself in? And he said, I turned myself in voluntarily. It was my decision, contradicted, contradicting any evidence. And then Romero's second question was, do you have anything else to add, change, or modify in the statement? And... Joran said, well, first, so when Romero asked the second question, you have anything else to add, change, modifying the statement, Joran seized the opportunity to focus on Natalie. He said, quote, first, I want to have the possibility of talking about Natalie Holloway's case five years ago and the possibility of requesting that the proceedings are fast so that I can be extradited to Aruba, end quote. Durand the Manipulator was on stage. The idea of a lengthy and dangerous prison sentence in Peru was unpalatable, so he was on his own here, plead bargainer, seeking to have himself extradited to Aruba. His bargain was unsuccessful. The interrogation concluded and a transcript was typed up and signed by all parties present. Kayan noticed that Duran's signature had changed overnight, dramatically different from the previous interview's autograph. That signature, identical to his passport, was an illegible inch-long script. Now, he signed his confession with a tiny scribble resembling the letter P. Luz Romero later explained that Joran's two signatures were calculatedly different because it would leave him the possibility that he could argue that what one wasn't his. That option was nullified, however, because in addition to the signatures, all parties agree to the veracity of the transcript by providing an impression of their right index fingers. June 7, 2010. Captain Juan Cayan was confident in his evidence, but he worried about the psychological profile Duran might present. He had reached the conclusion that the Dutchman was calculating 
calculative, manipulative, and evil. But was he sane? That's the question. Kaya knew Duran had slithered out of accusations and confessions in the Holloway case. He had made a personal vow that the snake would be convicted in Peru. The following morning, Duran met with Silvia Rojas Regalado, a forensic psychologist from the Peruvian National Police. Regalado had a reputation for getting inside the minds of criminals. Regalado was already familiar with the Flores case. She had been briefed by Cayenne's team and had read a detailed report on Van der Sloot's history before sitting down with him that Monday. Nevertheless, she needed to build her own profile of suspects of the suspect, one that would hold up in court, in the court of law. Duran answered all her questions lucidly, and he cooperated without hesitation. He spoke uh, Spanish well, you know, with a thick foreign accent, like me. <laughs> Dr. Regalado um, said that her plan was to focus not so much on what he said, but how he said it. He explained that during the uncomfortable discussion with Stephanie, he had lost control and struck her on the nose. And he used a psychological term. He said, I have an impulsive reaction. And Duran rewound the narrative to make Stephanie the instigator because he says that she struck him first in the head. Dr. Regalado notated that Joanne Van der Sloot had recounted the events of the investigation coherently, had responded clearly to the questions asked, and had accepted the blame for the criminal events for which he was now being investigated. After the psychological exam, Dr. Regalado sat down to record her findings, making them part of the body of evidence that would be submitted to the judge. And in her conclusion, she says, Joran uh, van der Sloot, age 22, at the time of this exam, does not exhibit psychopathological disorders. The examinee presents an antisocial personality character characterized by the ease with which he establishes superficial interpersonal relationships, indifference when it comes to others well-being, and the capacity to maintain a fraudulent social style, deficient social conscience that shows in the violation of rules and the mixing in events that affect others' rights, looking only to advance his own interest. He shows social irresponsibility, the enjoyment of superficial activities, in general a libertine and hedonistic lifestyle, in search of new sensations in order to be stimulated. He shows certain dominance over the opposite sex with the devaluation of the feminine figure. He exhibits a low tolerance to frustration, is unable to stand inconveniences, and shows a tendency to generate a vengeful attitude. He is emotionally immature, which prompts sudden changes in his behavior that can go from simple criticism to out-of-control emotions which make him prone to commit acts against the lives of others. Authorities next wanted to effect a reenactment of the crime scene. Like in Aruba, reenactments are commonly used in Peru 
allowing a perpetrator to demonstrate his version of a crime. Jovan's account suggested that Stephanie had not been murdered, but had died as a result of his self-defense. He claimed that a robbery had not been his motive, but an afterthought. In Peru, the charge of homicide, or second-degree murder, carries a sentence of as little as 15 years. With good behavior, Jovan would be eligible for release in less than seven years. However, if police proved the death was, was premeditated, the mandatory sentence was 35 years. Peru has no death penalty. They believe in inmate reform. Aggravated robbery in which a victim is killed during a robbery was also a consideration. Police had evidence that Stephanie had won money at the casino and believed Jovan knew about the bonanza. The reenactment was postponed and by Wednesday was canceled altogether. Officials believe they had ample evidence to present their case without it. Kayan had worked feverish, uh, fever, oh my gosh, feverishly, sorry, um, to put together his case before Friday's hearing in front of the judge. Based on his interviews, he was convinced the Dutchman had charmed Stephanie to his hotel room, intending to rob her. He chose her specifically because of her winnings. She was a gambler, like him, and he was able to lure her easily with his online gambling accounts accessible from his laptop in room 309. He knew the two had met before the murder because of the Atlantic City Casino surveillance photos. He believed he knew that Stephanie had won a staggering $10,000 earlier in the week. No money had been deposited in her bank account, confirmed by bank records. When Duran only found a few hundred dollars in her wallet, Kayan suspected he stole the Jeep, hoping to find more. He listed his 21 reasons for believing Jovan had murdered and robbed Stephanie Flores. Number one, before leaving Atlantic City Casino with Stephanie Van der Sloot, observed Flores exchange poker chips for cash, which made robbery an, att an attractive crime. Two, Van der Sloot admitted in the presence of a public ministry representative, his defense lawyer and translator, of having robbed Flores of 850 soles, her national ID, credit cards, bank card, as well as her Jeep on May 30th. When Flores resisted the attack, Van der Sloot physically assaulted her before he asphyxiated her, causing her death. Number three, Stephanie's empty purse was found at the scene of the crime, missing her money, bank cards, and ID. Number four, the cruelty exhibited by Van der Sloot as evidenced by the lesions on the different parts of her body, leaving open the possibility that inside room 309, Van der Sloot may have tortured Stephanie in an attempt to obtain the passwords to the victim's credit and bank cards in order to access the money in her accounts, showing no appreciation for human life. Number five, the way in which Van der Sloot attempted to lighten his penal responsibility in this crime by saying that he committed the murder in self-defense, claiming Stephanie initially struck him on the head. Number six, the autopsy report established that Stephanie's body, in an advanced state of discomposition, presented signs of cranial encephalic and cervical trauma, the cause of death being a blunt instrument, Duran's fists. Number seven, 
The time of death coincides with the time when the victim was seen alive for the last time, entering Van der Sloot's hotel room, a fact corroborated by security videos captured inside the hotel tag between 5.30 and 8.30 a.m. on May 30th, 2010. Number eight, Van der Sloot employed physical force, which resulted in concussions to the head, traumatic lesions to the face, cranial fractures, subcranial hemorrhaging in order to subdue his victim. And he then strangled her with both hands and lastly asphyxiated her. This is corroborated by the autopsy report. Number nine, footage from the security cameras of the Atlantic City Casino showed that Stephanie Flores arrived at the casino on May 30th at 2.54 a.m., driving her black Jeep and was captured again on video at 5.15, leaving the casino in the company of Joran. Number 10. Through a photo lineup, hotel tech employees, three of them, recognized the Dutchman as the guest who on May 30th at 5.20 a.m. entered room 309 in the company of Stephanie Flores before driving away alone in the victim's Jeep that same morning at 8.45 a.m. Number 11. Upon observing the videos of the security cameras inside the hotel tech, one can see the nervous attitude of the alleged perpetrator entering and exiting room 309 after committing the crime, presumably attempting to come up with a possible alibi. Number 12. Driver John Williams Pisconte, his brother John Oswaldo, and Carlos Uribe Pretil all identified Van der Sloot as the passenger they have driven to the city of Arica. Number 13, the contradictions between Van der Sloot's confession while in Peruvian custody and the voluntary deposition given in Chile, in which he made up a story about a robbery perpetrated by two subjects that were inside room 309. Number 14, the attitude and criminal conduct exhibited by the Dutch citizen in having abandoned the body of Stephanie Flores after perpetrating the crime, demonstrating coldness in his acts, and then fleeing for the Chilean border with the only purpose of evading justice. 15. The pre-existence of money was established through the price reports and videos of the Atlantic City showing the victim Stephanie Flores had won on a $10,000 bet on May 24th, 2010, and on April 30th, she also obtained winnings in the amount of 676 soles. The money was stolen by Bandersloot, a fact that is corroborated through records turned over the police by the casino. Number 16, video records from the hotel tag prove that the striped red shirt Vandersloot gave the drivers during his trip from Ica was the same piece of clothing that he was wearing when he fled the hotel tag. Number 17, the recovery of clothing among which was the striped red shirt, being the piece of clothing that he wore after the victimizing Stephanie Flores before fleeing the crime scene in her SUV. The shirt was given as a partial payment to the cabbies that transported him to the Chilean border. Number 18, the clothing abandoned at the scene of the crime after murdering Stephanie Flores were clearly re recognized as belonging to the suspect. Number 19, Police established that the M.O. of Joan Andreas Petrus van der Sloot was selecting female victims in casinos and through deceit obtaining his victim's money. Number 20, it was scientifically established that fingerprints obtained from van der Sloot while in custody in Lima matched prints lifted from Stephanie's Jeep. 
the prince corresponded to the pinky and ring fingers of the detainee's right hand. And 21, it was scientifically established that other fingerprints lifted from the scene of the crime gathered by homicide technicians from the edge of the glass ashtray nightstand, the central part of a plastic bottle found on the TV table in a transparent plastic bottle without a lid were a match to the middle and ring finger of Van der Sloot's right hand, as well as the middle finger of his left hand. Captain Kayan asserted that the death of Stephanie Flores was an act of cold-blooded murder, committed with premeditation, violence, ferocity, and cruelty, using physical force to cause her death. Kayang was confident his evidence would lead to a conviction, unlike his predecessors in Aruba five years earlier. The hearing, the hearing was short, with the determination that Duran remained in custody. He was reloaded into the van with the same fanfare. This time he traveled alone. He was destined for Peru's infamous Miguel Castro Castro prison. The prison was an hour's drive from central Lima. Despite the overcrowded conditions, Jovan required a private cell for security reasons. He was too high-profiled and too reviled to be in the general population. The one chosen for him almost adjoined the warden's office. His cell was 6 by 11 foot room, no windows, cement walls, heavy steel door. He was he was called by uh, or known he was known by the Peruvian media as El Monstruo, which means the monster. El Payaso um, was um, a man named Hugo Trujillo Ospina, El Payaso, the clown. He was a suspected Colombian hitman that was accused of strangling. A, Peru a Peruvian businesswoman in 2006. So they were sharing, um, I guess, a wall, a cell wall, and they could talk to each other and they became uh, fast friends. Jovan's mother, Anita, refused to visit Jovan. He, she had initially defended her son. She told reporters she believed Jovan had been framed but as more factual evidence emerged, she could not deny he was responsible for Stephanie Flores' death. Van der Sloot pleaded guilty in, on January 11, 2012. Um, he, was, uh, he pleaded guilty to what they call qualified murder and robbery of Stephanie. Jovan van der Sloot is currently serving a 28-year-old uh, sentence for killing Stephanie. Um, his lawyer is fighting extradition from Peru to the, to the U.S. as he is charged with extortion and wire fraud. Um, he married a woman in, that worked in the prison selling uh, things, I guess, in the prison, like a store. And her name is Lady Figueroa. He married her in 2014, and they had a daughter. He was transferred from the prison in Lima to one in high in the Andes because of threats of killing the warden. And 
In October 2014, Duran was stabbed and critically injured by some fellow prisoners who just hates his guts because of what he did to Stephanie Flores. This is the end of the Van der Sloot case. I have divided in four parts because um, I want it to be as detailed as and thorough as possible. There is a lot of information um, that has been mentioned um, in newspapers, in different videos, uh, documentaries. I just wanted to, to make it as thorough as possible. Thank you for listening to the murder, to the murder book on Kiara Coyle. Thanks again for tuning into the murder book, a true crime podcast. You can find all episodes of the murder book for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Our Heart Radio, Podchaser, Amazon Music. You can go to my website, the murder book, true crime podcast.com. All resources used in researching this episode, including books and newspaper articles, are on my website. We are on Facebook and on Twitter at the Murder Book One. Send your comments or suggestions at my email, themurderbook5 at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a five-star rating so that others can find this podcast and it helps me get better. Episodes come out every Monday and there's a Spanish version for this episode. Enjoy your week. Thank you.